Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. Really quick before we get into it, I just want to say thank you for being part of the pod with us. It is so much fun being able to bring these books to you and help you find the next book to read or just hear a different take on a big picture topic or understand an author's writing process. Now, you probably know what's coming, and it's true. It is only with your help and support that we can do this work. So please consider making a contribution at donate.npr.org books. Every day, we aim to bring you some thought-provoking interviews or hip you to the buzzy new thing on the block in books world. These books not only help keep you informed about all the things going on in the world around you, but they also offer a very welcome respite when the world around us gets to be a little too much. And you can help us keep that going for another year. Again, that's donate.npr.org slash books. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Okay, on to the show. Journalist Dawn Turner's nonfiction book, Three Girls from Bronzeville, was one of the most acclaimed books of 2021. It looked at her life and how she made it out of her hometown and climbed the socioeconomic ladder to success. But the book also looked at people who didn't quote-unquote make it, namely her sister and her best friend. The book is out now in paperback. When it came out, Turner spoke to Here and Now Celeste Headley about how success often comes from second chances, and second chances aren't given out to everyone. This message comes from NPR sponsor Sun and Ski Sports. They're celebrating National Bike Month in May with a big giveaway. Enter in-store to win a Cannondale Trail mountain bike or online to win a Haro Flightline 1 mountain bike. Cycling isn't just transportation. It's a boost for physical and mental health. Join them for Bike to Work Week from May 13th to 19th. Make every ride count this National Bike Month. Gear up at Sun and Ski Sports, where adventure begins. Visit sunandski.com. So let's start with Bronzeville itself, the location. In the beginning of the book, you write, To understand Deborah, Kim, and me, to understand what will happen to us, you have to know the place that has begun to shape us. We live in Chicago's historic Bronzeville community at three square miles. It's the cradle of the city's great migration, the epicenter of Black business and culture. So tell us about Bronzeville and why it becomes a central character in your book. Oh, yes, absolutely. My great-grandparents arrived in Chicago when my, with my grandmother in 1916 as part of the first wave of the Great Migration. And as more and more Blacks arrived, they were confined to this narrow strip of land on the near south side of the city, and it was called the Black Belt. And as that belt expanded, the area was later affectionately known as Bronzeville. And in the beginning, Chicago did feel like the promised land, but soon white homeowners moved and chopped up their stately homes to be used as kitchenette apartments, and the buildings fell onto horrible disrepair, and the city neglected the area. And yet, my grandmother would later tell us that the new residents did what Black folks have always done, took a bunch of scraps and stitched together a world. Some of the country's most esteemed Black people lived in Bronzeville. Gwendolyn Brooks, the first Black person to win the Pulitzer Prize, the novelist Richard Wright lived there, and Dr. Daniel Hale Williams, um, a Black man who was the first heart surgeon to perform the very first successful heart surgery. So not the first Black heart surgeon, but the first heart surgeon. And so Deborah Kim and I, when we were coming of age there, we inherited a legacy of innovation and excellence 
violence, but the community was also deformed by a history of redlining and restrictive housing covenants. So this made some places simply unsafe and some dreams for some of the residents there simply unattainable. So let's talk about Deborah and Kim. Kim is your younger sister, and when she's introduced in the book, she's very much what we would recognize as a younger sister to be, nipping at your heels all the time. And then your best friend, Deborah. Can you tell us a little bit more about your childhood together? Because the theme of the book seems to be that you started from the same sort of crucible with very different yes. results. We were, um, I was three years old in 1968 when I met my sister. She, from the very beginning, was a mystery to me, headstrong, stubborn, so, so willful. I was seven years old when I first met Deborah. We went to the same elementary school, and I just, I would watch her from afar because she also was stubborn and willful, and I was actually very different. I was more quiet, and for me, rules were scaffolding, but we found each other. And I mean, I didn't have a whole lot of say in regarding my sister, um, but Deborah and I became best friends in the third grade. And we learned that we not only lived in the same apartment complex, but her apartment was directly above mine. And we had so much in common. We, we were both uh, readers, avid readers, and we loved the children's book character, Pippi Longstocking. And in the spirit of Pippi, we roamed our neighborhood trying to find things um, for our Thing Finders Club that we believed could be made whole and new again. What was the moment in your life when you thought to yourself, things are going to be different. Things are different right now for Kim and for Deborah. We're going in different directions. It was probably around adolescence, and that is a fraught period for a lot of kids. It was a time when we had to kind of make a decision in terms of our friendships and our education. When I was younger, I mean, just it seems like from the very beginning, my teachers told me that I was really smart and that I should go to college. And Deborah and Kim were incredibly smart, but they were not necessarily told that um, because they were both willful and they maybe they turned in homework <laughs> as they kind of felt like it sometimes. So teachers kind of focused more on that with them than it was how smart they were. And so I think, I mean, for me, I knew that I was, or I felt so strongly about heading in the direction of college. And my friends kind of were of that same ilk in terms of uh, heading in that direction as well. And Kim's and Deborah's friends were a little more, um, they, they kind of liked the edge a little bit more <laughs> than, hmm. uh, and th that's what they were attracted to. So all three of you grew up in this neighborhood, and I understand that one of the reasons that motivated you to write this memoir was when you wanted to write a column about Deborah. I'm, I'm kind of struggling here because I don't want to give away any of the plot points of the book, but neither Kim nor Deborah have a happy ending. You mm -hmm. wanted to write a, a column about Deborah, and your editor said that could never have been you. Right. What did you think when he said that? Do you remember? I felt like it was, um, it, it had to do with white privilege or this idea that you can work super hard and you can make some pretty good decisions and then you're guaranteed to have a certain kind of life. And as an African-American person in this country, we're not so sure of that. 
I felt strongly then and now that there but for the grace of God go I when I think about my sister and I think about my best friend. And it's easy to say, well, oh, that could never have been you. But life can change in an instant and you never know the moment when that can happen and how that can happen. For my sister, she was in mourning for a long time. And for Deborah, she had other issues that she was dealing with. You start the the book with this description of the three of you as as children, um, and you mm-hmm. know you describe an incident in which Deborah jumps down this relatively high for children anyway high ledge and wants sure. you to do it as well, and you say no, <laughs> and you <laughs> s- describe them both as being the kind of person that says you can't tell us what to do, and in a way. <laughs> That's this admirable quality for these kids, like the courage of youth. And yet one of the the beauties, the magic of this book is you kind of show us how that kind of attitude sometimes doesn't age well. Sometimes risk is just risk. It it is right. It is an admirable quality if you can can manage it. And there's almost this kind of, can you walk up to the edge and not go over and that becomes the challenge. And I think that that's a, it's a, it's a tricky tightrope type maneuver, especially for black people and especially for black girls. What do you want people to take away from these stories of you and your sister and your friend? I hope readers see this as a story with a lot of universal themes centering on transcendence, grit, resilience, and second chances regarding who gets them and who doesn't. There's no question that Deborah and Kim charted their own path and that they had their own ideas regarding what they wanted to do with their lives. They made some bad choices, but we all do. And part of who makes it in this life depends on whether we can survive our bad choices. If I look over my life, I can identify the moments when luck intervened, when grace intervened. And I think that that's important in terms of how we look at people and how we dole out empathy. I wonder what you have taken away from this process. We both know that writing a book is sometimes a very long and torturous process. You're going back and back and back over the same passages. After all of that, examining in such detail your young life and the life of your your friend and your sister, has your view of them changed? I... I think I love them more. I am amazed by the hard work that Deborah has done. She was able to transform her life in such a way that I think it would be remarkable for anybody. I respect them and I, I've learned more about myself through them. Don Turner's book is Three Girls from Bronzeville, a uniquely American memoir of race, fate, and sisterhood. Don Turner, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's been my pleasure. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Lisa, in collaboration with West Elm. 
Discover the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, expertly crafted from natural latex and certified safe foams, designed with your health and the planet in mind. Visit leesa.com to learn more. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. <laughs> dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.